Welcome back to this podcast series, Patriarch, which is the retelling of the story of Abraham. My name is Colin Piper. I wrote and I'm now reading this latest extract uh, from the book. A complicated one to read, forgive me, so many place names, and it's actually not an easy one to listen to because it's more background knowledge. So don't get overexcited about this one, but this is an important one as it provides the context for so much of what goes on in the rest of the story. Here we go, Patriarch. Chapter 3, Part 3 Lot made his way down to Jericho, explaining to Eber as he went in boring, broad brushstrokes, without any of the essential detail, how he would branch out into fruit and olive growing. Eber tolerated the whims of his master without actually taking too much notice. And sure enough, as the caravan moved on towards Sodom, any talk of fruit and olives was quickly forgotten and replaced with excited conjecture of what they might encounter there. After all, Sodom was a mysterious city about which Lot had heard much but seen nothing while stifled by Abram's austere patronage. What Lot actually saw thrilled him. There wasn't the sophistication of Alexandria, but there was even more freedom. Anything went here. For instance, Lot was used to shrine prostitutes, but these women were different. They were wild and daring, unlike any prostitute he'd secretly encountered previously. He was told that once in their grasp, you were taken on a voyage of discovery of senses and experiences which defied description. He was told this, but never personally discovered it. His wife simply never allowed him the opportunity. She had entered into life in Sodom as easily as her caravan had entered through the gates. Immediately on stepping out of the contraption, she was at home, and equally all who saw her entrance accepted her as a true daughter of Sodom. She fit like a hand in a glove. It was Alexandria, only in her eyes, more so. But Lot was beginning to have his doubts about her. If he was honest, the doubts had begun a while before, perhaps on the journey to Sodom, maybe even earlier than that. There were irritating things about her, which which at first were funny, but now less so. There were silly things about her too, which more than irritated, they grated, and even once or twice angered Lot. In fact, the more he thought about it, the more she wore him down, and he even began to wonder what he saw in her in the first place. But it was too late now. She was not only his wife, but she was also carrying his child. Sodom, though, was a big enough distraction to allow him, if not to forget her irritating ways, at least to tolerate them. At first, Lot had camped outside the city, but not for long. 
Soon he entered, and once enticed inside the walls, he was entrapped, addicted to the sensual sights, sounds, and experiences with a continual lust for more. Nights were long and days were short. The wine flowed freely with the sweetest of aromas and most seductive of intoxicating tastes. The cost of his newfound lifestyle might have been sobering for Lot had it not been for the wealth his flocks were generating in the fields around. His grandiose plans for cultivating the land had quickly been forgotten once the city had ensnared him. But nothing stopped his flocks prospering, as well they might on the Jordanian plains. For his part, Lot had little idea where the provision for his lifestyle came from, nor did he care. Time was too short for such trifles. Plentiful drink having shattered his inhibitions, and the rich foods having satisfied the cravings of his belly, he turned his attention to his appearance. Back in Egypt, he, he'd learned the arts of self-grooming, much to his uncle's disapproval. He'd become fastidious about how he looked and was delighted to discover in Sodom the qualities of the local black salt sea mud, which invigorated his skin. And yet, for all the excitement of the city, Lot particularly enjoyed his excursions out. Oh, there were far too few of them for Lot's likings. His wife simply wouldn't allow it. She never ventured beyond the walls and couldn't see why he should want to. So whenever he did get out, he found it a breath of fresh air in more ways than one. Normally the expeditions would involve an ibex or oryx hunt up into the hills by Hazazon Tamar with the other men of the city. And just occasionally... When out climbing, he would wistfully remember his old uncle and just fleetingly wonder about him again, where he might be and what he might be doing. As soon as Abram saw the trees, he experienced a feeling he hadn't known since way back in Ur, long ago before God had even begun to speak to him. It was a feeling of belonging. Could he actually say it? This beautiful place felt like home. He hadn't quite felt this way for so long that emotion nearly got the better of him. There'd been places he'd experienced a sense of awe and wonder, and others which would be forever etched on his memory, particularly those where God had spoken to him or met with him. In fact, since God had spoken so specifically those months back when Lot had left him, the whole land had taken on a new significance, but nowhere felt quite like this. He'd walked the land to reclaim it, and with it he reclaimed his vision for it. He reflected just how differently things might have turned out. What if he'd stayed in Egypt, or, or what if by some quirk of chance Lot had chosen this as his portion? He began to sense a, a destiny, beyond anything his fears or hurts could contrive to disrupt. A destiny, ordained and worked out by the Lord of heaven and earth, the Sovereign Lord. 
he'd passed through the town of Kiriath Arba and met two men, Eskol and Anna, to whom Abram had immediately warmed. They were Amorites, not Canaanites, and Abram discovered a rare affinity with them. It was they who'd suggested Abram take his herds to, to graze near their brother who owned land, which they best defined as a copse of great trees. Oh, but Abram was unprepared for what he found there. The limitation of using descriptive words such as great lies in the hearer's preconceived scale of greatness. Abram realised he'd been way off when he'd encountered the trees on Mamre's land. It wasn't so much their size. The, the trees of Moray at Shechem were as large, but rather it was somehow the incongruity of so many giants standing together in solidarity, juxtaposed against an otherwise uniform covering of the much smaller olive trees. And if Abram liked the place, Sarai loved it. She too felt at home here. From the first time she saw it, she knew she would always be at rest here or in the neighbouring hills. And so Abram did what all settlers do when they settle. He built. The only difference between Abram and a settler whose nature was the nature of his building. Abram had only ever built one type of structure in his life, and now as he sought to make this place his home, he could think of nothing better to define all it meant to him. And it wasn't a house. <laughs> But Abram found more than that here, a beautiful context in which to live. He also found friends in Mamre, of the kind Lot had never been to him, even before he'd so easily upped and left. He was, though, unaware just how soon this new friendship was to be tested. Lot, though, was also discovering friendship of a sort. For all their noisy preparations and the eve of hunt bravado, his hunts rarely yielded much in terms of actual kills. The game animals of Hazon Tamar were normally given plenty of notice of the intentions of the raucous company as it ascended the wadi. This allowed the ibex and the oryx enough time to arrange to be somewhere else. Not that this seemed to disturb the would-be hunters overmuch, as they washed away any trace of disappointment in the refreshing waterfalls at the head of the riverbeds. Afterwards, they would camp, and they would eat meat, surreptitiously but wisely brought, ready to cook, just in case, by the servants. Amazingly, amidst the riotous chatter, None seemed to question the presumption of those who knew them best. On one such hunt, as the men dried from the swim and anticipated the cooking meat, they spoke excitedly about the decision of the city elders to stop paying tribute to Kedor Laoma, the king of Elam, and the extra wealth this would mean for each of them. Now, Lot knew something of the power of a lamb which wasn't far from his old home of Ur, although he knew nothing of the history and the background of the payment, nor indeed of the implications of non-payment, positive or negative. 
Lot, however, wasn't going to let either his knowledge or lack of it interfere with his enthusiasm as he entered into the excitement with the rest of the crowd all the same. He was now truly a man of the world of Sodom. Or at least he liked to think so. The reality was in fact somewhat different, as he was soon to discover. It was some time later that the reality became clear in two ways. First, Lot was to discover he was very much still an outsider, when one day he found his friends talking in animated but hushed tones, only to go quiet when he approached. Deeply hurt at their lack of trust, he went home to find out from his wife the cause of the anxiety. And where he had so obviously failed to be accepted into the inner circle and confidence of the men, she had unequivocally been accepted as one of the sisterhood of Sodom. Consequently, she was able to give him a brief history lesson and a more contemporary update on Sodom's precarious position. What Lot heard, together with what he already knew, sobered him like nothing had ever managed to do before. He'd never really thought about it previously, and only now realised that a city or a district like Sodom, and indeed others in the area like Gomorrah, Admar, Zeboim and Bela, were too small to protect themselves and exist safely from the attacks of their more powerful neighbours, After all, why should these powerful nations work to produce their own wealth when they could casually visit their little neighbours and walk off with theirs? Of course, even this involved effort, so Sodom could often buy off a slovenly brute by paying him just enough to make it worth his while to do nothing rather than go to the hassle of doing something nasty to them. The stronger neighbour, of course, held all the cards and asked for whatever he wanted. But with a little skill, Sodom could temper those demands somewhat. He didn't fully get the math because it was very complicated, but he understood that Sodom had to offer his powerful neighbour just enough to persuade him not to go to town and take the lot. Over the years, they'd had to give enough to keep him happy and, if possible, even persuade him that it was a greater share than it really was. This would help him see that even if there was short-term gain in raping and pillaging Sodom, the long-term devastation wouldn't be as fruitful as a groveling, dependent little brother generating wealth year in, year out for Big Brother without any exertion of energy or cost on his part. And meanwhile, behind the scenes, the diplomats of Sodom had to keep up with current affairs and keep a check mentally at least on the balances of power. Sometimes it had been necessary or even advantageous to switch allegiances to another big brother. Then again, if they'd done well in their diplomacy and general management over a period of time, the city had occasionally found they'd caught up their big brother in the strength stakes and he wasn't so powerful anymore. And even if he was still more powerful than Sodom, he might no longer have been more powerful than Sodom in alliance with one or two others. So working out the power plays of who to team up with was a major role of the local king and his elders, 
which in turn, of course, was one of the reasons why Sodom had been happy to let that king and those elders have some power and indeed financial rights over them. Now, though, Lot was beginning to realise that, unfortunately for Sodom, their cocooned existence didn't allow them to assess objectively or realistically those balances of power. And in any case, their king Berar and his elders weren't often in a condition to make sober judgments. And to make matters worse, those they did consult with were at very best only a little bit better informed or realistic than they were. Gomorrah was so much a twin city of Sodom that the two were in most minds inextricably linked. And their king Bersha's worldview didn't extend far beyond the city walls. The prevailing view within those walls was that the only way you could win the potentially big prize was not to consider too seriously the odds before you gamble. Of course, both cities were littered with corpses of the losers, but the fairy tale ending of the few winners was enough to encourage continued recklessness. The other kings locally were no better. Shinab notionally ruled the neighbouring city of Admar and Shemember the, the city of Zeboim, but in reality they just went along with Berar and Bersha for better or worse. The only other city in the Valley of Sidim, Bella, did stand a little more aloof, both geographically and culturally, but was so small and its king so weak, it, it found itself going along with the others, others as a matter of course, albeit often reluctantly. Consequently, it appeared that the consultations locally weren't so much as a case of pooling wisdom as reinforcing ignorance. And Lot now realised it was only a matter of time that one of their bad decisions would have catastrophic results. He couldn't work out whether the cities really thought the balance of power had shifted in their corporate favour or alternatively whether their self-view was so poor that they, they didn't think their powerful but relatively distant neighbours could be bothered to follow up their overdue Jews. Most likely, he decided, the decision to withhold tribute from their masters was made on no rational basis at all. Maybe enough gambles had paid off recently to encourage them to believe that now was the time to take advantage of their lucky run and pull off the big win. Only now was Lot beginning to see these leaders for who they really were, men who thrived on the adrenaline rush of, of recklessness and became heroes through their big talk. What none of them seemed to have anticipated were the combined armies, which, just when most people have forgotten about the whole tribute question, were rumoured to be on their way. Consequently, and unfortunately, for the Dead Sea cities, it appeared not only that Kedor Laoma, perhaps bored and in need of sport, had decided on a season of fighting, but also that his friends were keen to come along too. Consequently, a little detour off the pre-ranged itinerary to take in the renegade cities was not only easily arranged, but potentially further added to their adventure and profits. 
The first rumours to reach Sodom came from a distant city, apparently built on two hills, but only really known to the Sodomites as a home to the race of giants, the Rephaites. And when reports of their slaughter reached Sodom, it was enough to turn Sodom from self-obsession to an unusual openness to the world at large. What they heard, though, was alarming. From Ashtaroth Kanaim, the marauding armies went on to destroy the equally fierce Zuzites and Emites. The news of this carnage was particularly disturbing to the Sodomites, not only because they realised that if these large warlike cities were being swept aside, then what chance Sodom, but also because it was evident that the advancing hordes were heading their way. It wasn't long before the armies were reported on the Dead Sea shores themselves. They'd crossed the Jordan plains and were making their way through the hill country of Seir, where they made light work of the Horites. For a short time there was some hope that they would bypass insignificant Sodom as the armies made their way out into the desert and around El Paran. But then they turned back and they crushed the Amalekites at En-Mishpat, and the, the warrior tribes of the Amorites at Hazazon Tamar, no less. In ordinary circumstances, news of these brutes' massacres would have raised a cheer in Sodom. Their aloofness was a constant irritant to the Sodomites, and their humbling would certainly make hunting a little easier locally. However, these were no ordinary circumstances. And the latest reports were the ones they feared most. With all else destroyed around them, the Dead Sea cities were the obvious next target, particularly as they'd angered the beast, which was coming their way. You're listening to the Patriot Podcast. For more information, you can go to biblenovels.com where you can become a Patreon supporter to support Overseas Mission.